The hour to which the podcast adjourned having arrived, the podcast is now in order. Let's gavel in for this week's State House Takeout with the reporters on top of Beacon Hill at the State House News Service. Here's Sam Doran. Feels like it was just last month that we got a new state budget and Governor Baker is already making his proposal for next year's spending bill. Uh, Well, that's because it was just last month that the legislature approved a budget for fiscal 2021 after months of delays induced by the COVID-19 pandemic. But the State House is back to its traditional timetable, at least for now. January is when the governor traditionally sends his spending recommendations to the legislature. And on Wednesday this week, he unveiled a $45.6 billion budget plan for fiscal 2022. So it was just two months ago that we convened a State House takeout panel to react to a budget bill. And here we are again. Joining us today on the takeout, Marie Francis Rivera, president of the Mass Budget and Policy Center. And hey, I know you, it's Doug Halgate, who just returned to the Mass Taxpayers Foundation as executive vice president uh, this week after serving two years as a senior policy advisor to Senate President Karen Spilka. And on the part of the Statehouse News Service, we're joined by reporter Katie Lannon. Hi, folks. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having me. Hey, Sam. I think you might even know me, too. Um, I think I do. Um, but I, I'm glad to, to get to hear from, from some folks who, you know, have probably combed through it, the budget about as much as pretty much anyone could have at this point. Um, we're only a, a day in, and I certainly don't know myself yet where exactly every 45.6 of those billion dollars is going, but um, got some folks here who will help us break it down and to kind of get us rolling. I'd love Doug, Marie Francis, if you two could just give me your kind of, your what's your what's your top line takeaway on this budget? What, what do you think? Uh, I would say, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting budget. It's such a unique time, right? I mean, literally the governor signed the budget on like December 11th, something like that. So we're six weeks later. And so it's a little hard to assess. And I think one of the things you'll hear as we talk about it is those standard comparisons of this budget to last budget are a little, they require, there are a few more caveats required in terms of making some of those comparisons. One, because of the timeline. And then two, because we have so many resources flowing outside of the budget these days in terms of federal support and some of those things that a lot of the standard analysis that MTF does, that math budget does, just requires a few more caveats. But but generally speaking, I think it's that what are the takeaways for me are, you know, clearly a focus on Student Opportunity Act and, and, and implementing that, a focus on kind of maintaining government services and kind of a, a uh, protecting existing government services and some interesting stuff on the on the policy sections. But Marie Francis, I don't know what what do you have? Uh, I mean, what I would say, and I agree with you. Um, there are a lot of moving pieces um, with COVID, with federal funding. Um, so to disentangle everything is has been a little bit challenging and will continue to be. Um, what I will say is that, you know, based on the level of extreme need that we're seeing in the Commonwealth at this point, you know, this budget, um, especially the 
actual state funding um, is not meeting the level of need in the Commonwealth. Of course, there are federal funds that are coming through to support education, to support housing. You know, we're still a bit unclear as to what the, those levels actually are. Um, and it's certainly um, fantastic that we're getting support through the federal government, right? Um, and that we have a pretty healthy rainy day fund to pull from. Um, but the rainy day funds and the federal funds um, aren't long-term solutions to making sure that we can house people, feed people, educate kids. Um, so it's it's not meeting it's not meeting the moment. Yeah, and and Mass Budget yesterday put out a, a statement describing the the budget as a as a short-sighted recovery budget. Um, Marie Francis, are there specific spending areas you you would have liked to see the the governor go further on in his proposal? Sure, I would say, um, I mean, housing rises to the top. We have, you know, even pre-COVID, a housing emergency in the state. Now it's exacerbated. Um, the, you know, there have been measures and kind of the eviction um, diversion initiative, and um, there's federal funding coming through. Uh, but if, you know, we're looking at state spending um, for programs like RAFT, for voucher programs to support families, um, we're not seeing the big investments that we know that we need when we have a million and a half adults in Massachusetts saying that they're struggling to pay the rent and or utilities. So that's that's one. I mean, you know, a big point of discussion um, since Baker passed, you know, the Student Opportunity Act um, has been how are we going to fund this? And we know that last year we were not able to meet the first year of the implementation. Um, this year we see not the investments that we need to try and catch up to the timeline that was proposed in the legislation. Uh, so that's another area where we know that schools, especially in gateway cities, um, continue to struggle to make sure that students are supported either you know, remote, hybrid, in-person learning. So that, that's another area. You know, in, in transportation, we're seeing cuts. Public higher ed, we're seeing cuts. So lots of lots of areas that we we need to be looking at and making investments in. Yeah, I think you you both mentioned the the Student Opportunity Act, and it is this is the the second budget proposal from the governor that now that that proposes to fund year one. Um, looks like we might be getting into a little bit of a a fraction battle um, in this at, at some point, whereas, you know, we had, it was originally viewed as a, as a seven-year implementation schedule, um, but now we're, we're two years after that law has been passed, so there, there's certainly, we're hearing from folks who are talking about this should be one-sixth of the plan and not one-seventh. I Heard a, got a lot of statements in my inbox yesterday to that effect, and uh, I'm guessing that's something we're going to hear as this moves through the the legislative process. Um, what what does this budget do with the the Student Opportunity Act? Doug, can you maybe walk us through that a little bit? Sure. So um, I will say that that especially with the Chapter 70 formula, it it, it takes a little while to delve into all of uh, Desi's phenomenal materials, which are always posted about nine seconds after the governor's budget is live. So uh, they are quick. Yeah, I know. Um, so, um, so, but it 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 certainly appears that this 
uh, undertakes one seventh of full rates for the Student Opportunity Act. So it's important, there are kind of three pieces of the Student Opportunity Act from a financing standpoint. So one of the things the Student Opportunity Act did was it put in place um, and codified the standard for uh, accounting for low-income students at a, at a um, in a more inclusive standard. And as the state works towards that standard, which is going to be 185% of FPL, federal poverty level, it essentially allows districts to either use the current standard, which is uh, basically 133% of federal poverty level standard, or count a higher share of their students as was done five years ago or so. So, and, and that results in, in a significantly higher low income count. Um, and, and that is expensive. That's you know tens of thousands of additional low income students, which I think the bill was very intentional about saying, no, 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 these are clearly low income students who require these, in, these uh, investments, but bringing all those kids enrollment wise on the books you know, is, a, is a big cost. And so the, this bill does that. Um, it also does one seventh of the foundation rate increments necessary to get to that kind of full implementation. And so broadly speaking, that's low income rates, English learner rates, rates related to uh, uh, employee benefits and fixed charges, special education, uh, psychological uh, um, uh, and behavioral health service rates. So, and it does that as well. And then third, um, the Student Opportunity Act also expanded the state's special education circuit breaker program to include out-of-district transportation and committed to fully funding charter school tuition reimbursement. So those are, I know that was a bit of a laundry list, but that's basically the, the budget fiscal component. And so it does those things. Um, one of the reasons why it does it at a cost that is significantly less than what that cost would have been say last year is you're seeing a huge impact of COVID on enrollment, right? And it, yet at the end of the day, you're talking about an enrollment-based financial formula. And typically state enrollments hovers around a million kids, you know, goes up a thousand, down a thousand. Um, this year, it it's, looks like it's gonna go down about 30,000 students, right? So probably about 30 times the change in enrollment that you would typically see. And so what that does is that's gonna reduce the state level cost of this, which in some ways that makes the first year a little more affordable, um, but that also means that as those students return, you're, you're gonna see um, more cost pressures in out years. Yeah, and that, that's interesting because we had, when this year's enrollment numbers, are, they're based on October figures uh, from the school districts. When those came up at the Board of Elementary and Secondary Education meeting um, some number of weeks ago, I'm not even gonna try to pretend I understand calendars, um, anymore, but some of the the members of that board put a, put a caution flag up on on making permanent or not permanent everything's year to year, but baking in really assumptions based on those numbers, saying that some of those students are going to come back. There's you know kindergartners who maybe have kept out of school for a year, families who who've temporarily relocated or otherwise are, are pursuing different options. So that's, I think, something really to keep an eye on. Um, and Marie Francis, I know Mass Budget had said before the budget came out is one of the things that you folks were looking at was where that school funding level would stand. You, you said that they would need to be at the one-sixth level rather than a one-seventh level to, to get back on track after waiting last year. What, what do you make of this kind of uh, the level that's in there in terms of both the, the one seventh versus one sixth and the enrollment figures. Yeah, I mean, you know, we think 
we should stick to the timetable. You know, this is, we're in a period of time where schools are relying on funding even more than they were pre-pandemic. And that's when we made this agreement, right? Um, of course, our federal funds to help support schools as well, Title I schools. Um, but I agree with you and the folks um, that you were talking about at the meeting at, at DESE, I think you said it was. Um, the enrollment disruptions have been crazy. Um, and to rely on, you know, October of last year um, during a pandemic um, to, to base kind of the numbers of students um, that you should be expecting um, for coming school year just doesn't make sense um, at this point and could potentially underfund many schools that are gonna be seeing an influx of kids returning and, and starting in, in pre-K and K-1, K-2, so. One thing I would just add, because again, to me, this is a great example of the how weird this time period is, is so historical context, $200 million new in chapter 70 is a big investment in chapter 70. That's not to say, you know, obviously, um, that's not to say it's sufficient, insufficient, whatever, but just historically speaking, $200 million in new chapter 70 is on the higher end, right? So in in, in, Jan, in late December, Congress passed the latest kind of stimulus-ish uh, legislation that included um, additional money for ESSER, though I think by and large, us uh, in Massachusetts certainly included, it was seen as kind of an underwhelming stimulus and we're very much hopeful that, that there will be more action soon. That stimulus included $800 million in ESSER funds for Massachusetts K-12, right? So just the orders of magnitude of some of these things just make a lot of these comparisons really um, just more challenging than they would normally be. That, that how do you account for that $800 million, which obviously it's not sustaining funding, right? It, it's kind of temporary. Hopefully they'll, they'll, there'll be more ESSER funds, but, but it's, it's temporary in nature. But it's also money that, that we all need to think about. How does that factor into this, right? In, 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 um, and I think that's a question that, that everyone's struggling with. Yeah, I think that the, the point about the comparisons is a good one. I've seen from a lot of advocacy groups and even the, the administration itself kind of, you know, whereas normally we'd see a, a year to year, you know, this account is X more or Y less than last year's budget. I'm seeing a lot of comparisons that are just going straight to, to fiscal 20 and skipping the current year, leaving that out of the equation altogether, because it is so unusual. And one thing that, that struck me as unusual about this current budget, I don't think I've seen this in my time covering the State House, is a budget proposal with a, a smaller bottom line than the, than the current fiscal year, than the previous budget. How, how atypical or how common is that? Can we put that in context? Um, I can go. Sorry. Uh, it's it's certainly um, uncommon. I mean, as Doug said, there are federal funds that are coming through. Um, but you know, it's just disappointing um, that <laughs> at this time when we're seeing a once in a generation pandemic hitting, that we're seeing lower levels of state funding supporting programs. Um, you know, that's. It's my view on it. So it's I would not, say from it's a not visionary um, or, you know, it's it's not, you know, we're, we're basically doing a status quo thing um, 
to address a immense, immense problem that we're seeing. So, so I would say from a strictly speaking historical context, this of course, this question had me going right to the statutory basis financial report to find out strictly speaking how unusual it is. And it's unusual, right? I mean, uh, maybe it depends on how you count things. 2009, probably 2004. So, so during the last two kind of bad recessions. Um, I would say though, there are a couple important contextual things to keep in mind here, right? One, the FY21 budget, I think appropriately was delayed until December, right? I think if you had seen mm -hmm. this budget out in July, it would have been a brutal budget. Whereas the, the budget that was signed, put before the governor in December and signed, I think generally speaking included a lot of good positive investments related to COVID. Because that budget doesn't really get implemented until January, for a lot of those new programs of which there were a number related to COVID, instead of spending that money over six, 12 months, you're spending it over six months. And so my guess is there will be a lot of those new programs in the FY21 budget that will not be fully expended in FY21 and in fact will carry forward to FY22. So I think childcare is a great example of that where the, the legislature made significant new investments in childcare workforce, parent fees, a lot of those areas. Just the run rate of getting all that money out the door between January and June is gonna be tight. And it wouldn't surprise me at all is if you see a significant piece of that be carried over into 22. And so that does two things, right? It kind of inflates the 21 figure and undercounts the 22 figure. Um, the, the other thing that is just, I think a reality is the, the budget and the supplemental budgets have really been the place for the legislature to make clear their spending priorities for COVID, right? And, and I think they've done that in the supplemental budget in the, in the summer, they did that in the budget. Um, in terms of new investments in housing and new investments in food security and those types of things. The administration has had these other kind of pots of money that just don't flow through the budget that are a little hard to kind of reconcile with the budget. So for example, the governor, I don't even remember when, it's probably the same day as that DESE meeting, um, when the governor announced his $600 million small business support program, right? That's not in here. Um, $800 million for ESSER, as I mentioned, that's not in the governor's budget. There's about $130 million in, in additional childcare development block grant money from the feds also authorized in December that's not in here. And so all that, that's not to say kind of what we should be spending, shouldn't be spending. It's just, again, a lot of those standard comparisons you see about, okay, we spent 10 units of, of state resources this year, we spent eight last year. It's just a much murkier comparison because of all of those factors. But strictly speaking, it is very unusual. And this, this is a budget that makes a pretty substantial use of the, the state's rainy day fund, the stabilization fund, uh, the reserves, whatever you wanna call it. Um, and you know, we, we saw that this, this past year, fiscal 21, the current year um, as well, along with lots of other one-time revenue sources to kind of cobble it all together. Uh, I'm, I'm curious what, what each of you think. Is it the right move to be planning to pull this much from the, the rainy day fund? Um, I know there, there's always a chance revenues could be better than expected or the federal government will, will get some sort of other major stimulus plan through. But in, in the meantime, is, is counting on that the, the right move? I mean, what we've said is it's raining 
you know, it's pouring, so it's time to use, you know, our, our savings. Uh, you know, we planned on pulling over a billion last fiscal year. We're planning on pulling over a billion this fiscal year. We have about three and a half billion in there to begin with. Um, so we're clearly depleting, you know, our savings. So then, you know, the next question is what's the plan um, to make sure that we are rebuilding it, you know, and <clears throat> what, what we're seeing is that, you know, we think that this economic um, recession that we're in is gonna be fairly prolonged. Um, so we're gonna continue to need um, a cushion there. And, you know, what, what are the revenue sources that feed into um, making sure that we have that cushion, right? Um, looking at capital gains and, you know, taxes like that to make sure that we have enough money flowing in. So if this recession is prolonged or when the next one comes along, um, that we have that cushion um, there in addition to, to federal funds that we're relying on. So I would say in terms of the use of reserves, one, I think a, a lot of credit does need to go to policymakers in terms of the three and a half billion that was in there before this, right? That was uh, a record for the state by over a billion dollars. Um, and so I think that this is clearly, as Marie Francis said, is the time to be pulling from those reserves. The other thing I would say though is um, these numbers are moving around quite a bit. So on December 8th of last year, you would have thought that ta that the state fund draw would be $1.7 billion in FY21. A week later, you would have thought it would be $1.3 billion. Now we're planning on $1.1 billion. Um, and so those numbers move around quite a bit and you're gonna see that in 22 as well. Um, so literally days after the administration must have finalized their budget, the the um, Biden administration announced that states can plan on six more months of enhanced uh, Medicaid reimbursements. The governor's budget assumes no enhanced Medicaid reimbursements in FY22. We now know we're going to get between 500 and 600 million dollars in those reimbursements. So right there, I mean, if they had come out with their budget next week, you probably would have seen a much different stable. Um, so I think that's one thing to keep in mind. The other thing to keep in mind is um, State tax collections and how to figure those out is a re it's always a challenge. It's even more of a challenge now. But the good news is, at least over the past, say, eight months, they've trended more positively than we've expected, even as we've continued to kind of upgrade expectations. So what do I mean by that? So the, the uh, revenue estimate used for the budget the House and Senate sent to the governor in December that was upgraded by 400 and some odd million dollars a few days later, further upgraded by another $700 million a couple weeks ago. And if anything, it probably still looks a little on the low side compared to where those tax collections are. And so as we get to the big revenue months, especially April, you never know what's gonna happen, but you could see a significant change in I think expected tax uh, taxes. And that'll obviously, those are ongoing revenues. And so if we're looking at a much different tax kind of baseline upon which to build the budget, it's gonna be, have a huge implication on the use of reserves. And then finally, obviously, it's clear the Biden administration's number one legislative priority is a, stim is a big stimulus bill. 
And so that's something that, that will be a huge game changer in terms of what we need to use from our reserves. I mean, as Marie Francis said, this, this, these monies are finite and, and you need to make sure that you're kind of husbanding them through whatever time period you need to get through. Um, and so that's something that I'm sure the administration is mindful of and I know the House and Senate will be mindful of. Given everything that's in play right now, I think it's probably a little premature to, to, to write 1.6 billion in pen for FY22 just because of stuff that, that has already happened and that what we'd expect to happen probably over the next couple months. Definitely a lot of moving parts here. And of course, the, the filing of House One is only the, the first volley in a, a budgeting process that ideally will be done around July. Um, but we'll see how that goes this year. Um, Marie Francis, Doug, what are each of you gonna be watching for as this moves through the, the legislative process? Sure. I mean, what we're watching for is, you know, with the federal funds that are coming through, and as Doug said, um, it's fantastic. And now, you know, with the Biden administration, we can um, rely on hopefully some funds that um, maybe weren't available um, to state to fund state budgets before. Um, but with all of these funds going through and with sort of the questions that we're asking ourselves about, like, we can't figure this out, we can't figure this other thing out. Um, there needs to be a level of transparency around like those funds that are coming in and where they're being allocated to and what the process is around decision making um, to where those funds get directed to. So that's one thing that us and many of the partners that we work with that are, you know, either early ed advocates, you know, housing advocates, transportation advocates, um, K through 12 advocates, et cetera, are really, you know, going to continue to look at um, where these funds are being allocated and also are they being allocated to places with the most need? So are they being allocated to our gateway cities, um, you know, to, to, you know, rural areas that really need the support? So those are things we're going to continue to look at um, and, you know, just continuing to monitor um, you know, what the most urgent needs are um, and ensuring that, you know, our state government really responds to those in, in, in a level that's, that's necessary um, to ensuring that we actually pave some road to recovery for everybody in our state. Yeah, I, I guess to, to piggyback on, on a bit of that, I think one of the things that now that we're entering year two of a COVID budget having the ability for everyone to better understand all the sources of re uh, resources available to us and how they're being used in kind of a, a cohesive manner, I think is, is in everyone's, is something everyone's gonna be looking at. I know MTF's gonna be looking at it. I'm sure Mass, Mass Budget's gonna be looking at it. And, um, and I think you saw in the, in the FY21 conference report, there's, I think there's a requirement for the administration to create a new uh, website to track some of these funds um, to just make sure we're all understanding it is complicated, right? So that's one thing. I think secondly, from a resource standpoint, as we've discussed, state tax revenues and those trends over the next couple of months and what the feds do are absolutely huge in terms of informing what happens in this budget, right? And what what is what the resources available, how realistic um, uh, those resources are in terms of budgeting and then what folks, how folks want to devote them to the COVID response or other things. I think that's a huge kind of big picture one. And then at a smaller level, it's always fascinating to see whether there are proposals that have been put out there before, you know, the governor's budget assumes some sports gaming revenue, assumes some revenue from a pharmacy 
uh, a couple pharmacy assessments that have, they've proposed before. Um, they've uh, also proposed a couple new things, an increased assessment on hospitals um, that you just, to see what gains traction and, and I, we'll take a look, Mass Budget, other groups will take a look to figure out, okay, what does, what is this proposal? What does it do? Uh, what does it mean for the state budget and what are the policy implications and trying to see kind of which of those are going to um, kind of proceed through the process and which of those maybe uh, you, you're not going to see when, when hopefully we're talking about this in July and not December. Fingers crossed on that one. <laughs> now, um, there's obviously there's a lot to talk about in both the, the broader fiscal climate and in this, this piece of legislation it, itself. And normally I'd hold up my my budget hard copy to illustrate that point. I guess pointing to a website doesn't have the, the same effect. And this is a podcast anyways, so no one will ultimately see whatever I gesture to. But um, before I let you two go, um, I do wanna, wanna ask if there is anything that, that caught your eye in this proposal that you aren't really hearing people talk about yet that you think is kind of a, a so far undercovered issue um, on you know day two of the news cycle. I mean, I think there's been some coverage of this, but there's just been, you know, many cuts. Um, you know, it, it's, it's I, at this point, yeah, we've been in COVID for such a long time that we're sort of forgetting some of the news stories from, you know, the start of the pandemic with, you know, the cuts um, and, and layoffs that UMass systems had to make. Um, you know, there's just such a major um, disruption um, in so many of these systems uh, and just, you know, even though, you know, just looking at this budget on a surface level sort of is like, well, it's level funding and it's cuts. Um, the level of disruption that's been ongoing um, has just been so intense um, that just continuing to cover in depth kind of the the stories of many of these agencies you know many of these schools is just going to continue to be important so that we really know um what the level of support um that students and teachers and early ed providers are going to continue to to need and people in communities so i would say um to me mass health is a fascinating one in that it, it, from a historical perspective, looking at mass health as the area of the budget upon which it's essentially you're, you're relying on savings from mass health, there's additional resources from the federal government in terms of these enhanced FMAP. That's just a different kind of, it's, you know, normally mass health cost pressures are really what's putting a strain on other areas of the budget. And this budget relies on continued kind of um, utilization declines in mass health as people are deferring medical care, right? Um, and, and then you have the new um, announcement on federal resources where you probably got another $500 million or so in mass health revenue coming in that will be, I'm sure, of great assistance to the House and the Senate. And I think the question is, when, when you want people to get the medical care they need, right? So when do those utilization trends change? And also, mass health enrollment has grown pretty significantly during the pandemic, one, because of the impact on, on um, lower income earners, and two, because uh, the federal government put in standards about the normal kind of redetermination efforts that the state goes through are essentially on hold. And so I think that the ma mass health's interaction with, with the state budget um, could change in a hurry, right? Whereas if, if when things, God willing, get better and people are 
going to the doctor and doing all those things, um, you could have that exert a lot of pressure on other areas of the budget that at least in house one, um, you're relying on savings in mass health and, 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 and house and Senate are gonna be able to rely on some additional revenues there. So that, so that to me is kind of an interesting one as well. All right, folks, and we're just out of time, but our thanks to Katie Lannon and to Marie Francis Rivera of the Mass Budget and Policy Center and Doug Howgate of the Mass Taxpayers Foundation. Thank you both for your insights and analysis in, uh, as Katie said, what was the first volley of this uh, new budget process and indeed a lot of moving parts as we keep our fingers crossed on recovery of public health and the economy so that as uh, Doug said, we can be talking about wrapping this up in July rather than December of this year. So uh, we'll uh, look forward to checking back in with your respective organizations as we continue down this fiscal 2022 pathway. <laughs> Take care, folks, and uh, we'll see you next week. Thank you. Thank you. Statehouse Takeout is a production of the Statehouse News Service. And for a daily fix of Statehouse headlines, visit masterlist.com. Masterlist with two S's. Thanks again for listening. See you next week.